Well, it's good to be together with you. My name is Scott, and uh, we're going to look at some, uh, some scripture passages in a couple of minutes and uh, talk about what the season of Epiphany means for us. Uh, but before we get too heavily into that stuff, I wanted to show you a couple of uh, photographs I took over the last couple of weeks. This first one is of my nephew named Ben. He's, he just turned one two days after Christmas. Isn't he cute? Doesn't the iPhone make him even cuter? <laughs> uh, we're training him up in the way he should go so that when he's old he will not depart from it. Um, but he turned, turned one just a couple weeks ago. Uh, and the second photo I want to show you is of my niece. Uh, and if you come to the morning service at all, you've probably met Violet. Um, she, uh, at the time of this photo, was about 21 months old, just, just a few months shy of her second birthday. And uh, these were both taken around Christmas time. And uh, you might be thinking to yourself, uh, he just wanted to show off his family, <laughs> or maybe his nice camera. Um, and you would probably be partially right <laughs> about that, and I hope that you'll forgive me. But what I also wanted to do is give you a mental image of the, the age that Jesus probably was when the wise men came to visit him. This didn't happen at the uh, nativity scene. But we, even though we have it over here that way, uh, that's kind of a, a conflation uh, of a couple of different stories in the New Testament. We think that it probably happened between the age of one and two. So somewhere between Ben's age and around Violet's age is probably how old Jesus was when the events we're talking about tonight happened. So just keep those images in your mind and think about how old, uh, how old he might have been. Um, because this is one of the big days in the life of Jesus. We are in the middle of a series called The Days of Jesus, and last week we talked about um, the naming of Jesus, the circumcision of Jesus, uh, and that was an important milestone in the story of his uh, life and ministry. And today we're talking about Epiphany, um, what we call Epiphany, anyway, which is the, when he was visited by three wise men from the East. Um, we call this Epiphany in the Western Church. You may not know that in the Eastern Church, Epiphany celebrates something different. In the Eastern Church, Epiphany is the day they celebrate the baptism of Jesus, which we're going to get to next week in this series, I think. Um, which kind of makes sense if you think about what the word epiphany means. Epiphany just means, it's from Greek, it means to show or to manifest, kind of to reveal. Um, you think of, think of having an epiphany, it's like an idea is shown to you, and you get an understanding of something. And so when the baptism of Jesus, you have this dove that comes down, and this is my son who I'm well pleased with, and, and that makes sense, that Jesus is being shown or revealed as the Son of God. So I think in this case, the Eastern Church might be on to something. So uh, perhaps we should all convert to Russian Orthodoxy or something like that. Um, but before we go rushing to do that, um, Russian to do that? <laughs> oh. The pun I had this morning was much worse. <laughs> it might, it might make the podcast. You could listen for it. But, um, but before we go Russian to convert to... Uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, I want to tell you why we celebrate this event and call it Epiphany. Um, and the reason for that is 
the church has generally understood the story of the wise men following the star and, and worshiping Jesus to be the first moment where salvation became available to all people, to the Gentiles, not just to the selected Jewish people. And so Christ is revealed or shown as the Savior of all the world, not just God redeeming a very tiny portion of the population. And that's why we call it Epiphany in the Western Church. But let's read this story. Um, if you'd like to follow along, it will be on the screen. If you prefer to read a Bible, you can grab one of the red ones underneath your seat. And we're in Matthew chapter 2, which is on page 783 in these red Bibles. We're going to read through the first 12 verses here. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And then he quotes the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. And having heard this, Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. Let me just stop here for just a second. Herod is not being entirely truthful here. He doesn't want to worship the baby Jesus. He kind of wants to kill uh, the baby Jesus. You see, he's, he's a king and ostensibly Jewish, um, but not very well liked among the Jewish people because he was sort of a torment. <laughs> um, and when he hears these people coming saying, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? You could forgive him for not being entirely excited about the idea of somebody being born who would eventually unseat him from his throne. And so he tells the wise men, why don't you go and bring him back here so that I can uh, pay him homage too. He's not really going to do that. But um, Let's move on from verse 9. When the wise men had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. <clears throat> so who were these wise men from the east? Pastor Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, so you may remember that, or you may have already heard some of this, but I want to give you just the, a, a tiny little bit of context here about who these guys were. Um, we call them magi, which is essentially a Latinization of the Greek word magos, um, uh, which is used to describe a specific priestly sect 
of a Persian religion called Zoroastrianism. Don't try to say that. <laughs> I could break it down into syllables for you, but it has kind of a, a naughty word in there. So Zoroastrianism. Um, <laughs> yeah. This same word, um, magos, is used in, in at least one other place in the New Testament, and it's not particularly favorable. Do you remember the story of Simon the sorcerer? Simon the magician? Simon Magos? Um, he's this guy who, who was kind of this magician who, for, for hire and made his living uh, kind of conjuring and things. And when the Holy Spirit started to come on people, he, he, he tried to pay the apostles to teach him how to lay hands on others and give them the Holy Spirit because it seemed like a, a good parlor trick, apparently. Um, and they rebuked him harshly and said, you have no place doing this. Uh, so Simon Magos one of the magi in that community, not really somebody you want to emulate. These magi, um, kind of an entirely different story. Surprisingly, because, as I said, they were priests of a pagan religion. Zoroastrianism is, is a pre-Islamic Persian religion. And uh, they were astrologers. Anybody know what the Old Testament has to say about astrology? It's not, it's, it's right up there with like cloven hooves and things, <laughs> or worse. Um, not, not exactly something you want to be caught doing on your way to visit the Jewish Messiah. There's actually another kind of cool tradition, this is post-biblical, um, but one of the fun traditions of the church is that after, you know, long after this event, they had left, and Jesus' life had, had come, and he had been crucified and resurrected, and Christianity had started taking root, and St. Thomas was commissioned to take the gospel to India, and on his way, the legend says, he met these three uh, magi again and told them the uh, rest of the story and, and baptized them. It's kind of a cool tradition, but, you know, who knows? Um, So, just the barest bit of context about them, and I, the reason I want you to know about that is because I think it's such a powerful image of the really big idea that Epiphany speaks to. That is what? As I said before, the opening of salvation to the Gentiles, the availability of redemption to people outside the Jewish faith. This is a really, like, I don't know if we can even comprehend how big a deal this is, that God would do something like this. Um, because if you know anything about Judaism, especially to that point and in that time, the, the very idea that somebody who was an unclean, uncircumcised, pagan priest astrologer could, could even begin to be in relationship with God was really, I mean, that sort of took everything and dumped it out on the table, and, and it just completely obliterated the understanding of the religious faith that, that, that people were embracing. It's like one cosmic people get ready, <laughs> you know. One of the other um, passages from the, the lectionary for 
the Feast of Epiphany, which is, you know, we're, Epiphany is technically the 6th of January. We're a couple days early, but that's all right. Uh, one of the other passages that is usually read on the celebration of Epiphany is Ephesians chapter 3. And I want to read you just one of the verses uh, from chapter 3 of Ephesians. <clears throat> Paul's talking about this mystery that has been made known, excuse me, made known to the people. That mystery is that the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The availability of salvation to the Gentiles is a big enough deal. But when you consider the way in which God drew these particular Gentiles to Jesus, it's really staggering. Okay, did God speak to these pagan priests uh, in a burning bush? He's a fan of burning bushes, we know that. No. Did he send somebody up a mountain to come down with stone tablets for them to read? No. Did he speak to them in the wind? Send a messenger, an angel of the Lord, to share with them? He did none of these things, these other things that he's done throughout history to that point, to speak to people. What did he do to these pagan astrologers who had their heads stuck in the clouds? He sent a star. You know, a star, the really pretty thing that we put on our Christmas tree. The very object of their pagan practice. How mind-boggling is that? Would we ever write that script? Would we ever suggest that God would do something like that? No. We would, we would kind of impose our own perspective on what we think, how we think, when we think, and where we think God should reach out, and to whom. Could there be any more unlikely a candidate to be drawn to the Jewish Messiah than these Zoroastrian priests, these astrologers. And imagine how Joseph and Mary must have felt. This is, this is my wife's contribution to tonight's sermon. I was telling her this story, and she's like, yeah, what, what would Joseph and Mary think when suddenly these three like Persian guys are knocking on their door saying, we want to come worship your son? Like, you're not even supposed to touch these people. So, I mean, I don't know about you, but nowadays, um, astrology is kind of a, you know, it, it's, it doesn't have quite the stigma in most, most segments of society in the church. It doesn't have quite the stigma that it would have had um, at this time. You know, you can read your horoscope in the paper or online or whatever you want to do, um, and it's kind of an entertainment value thing, and nobody's going to cast you out for that, probably. Well, not out of here, anyway. <laughs> um, so astrologers, you know, we'd be okay probably if they wanted to worship Jesus. But I want to ask you this question. And if, if, um, if you're feeling brave, you can maybe shout out an answer. But I want you to think of the most unlikely candidates today. Who would the Magi be today? The ones whom the religious establishment might be disgusted to see coming near their precious little baby Jesus. You know, we have some people, I, I won't name names, we have some people here at Artisan who are the, uh, they're the Purell um, addicts. Anybody here a, a germaphobe? Like, you're squirting sanitizer on everything? 
And any moms out there, like anything that comes near your baby, you want to squirt the Purell on it? (laughs) I think that we take that approach to the baby Jesus sometimes. And we say, no, 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 no. Wash your hands, please. You cannot touch my baby Jesus until you squirt that Purell on your spiritual hands. Which misses the point entirely because Jesus is the Purell. Okay. <laughs> How's that for Christology? <laughs> Jesus is the hand sanitizer. So what are the dirty hands? Who are the, who are the pagan priests, the astrologers, that we don't want to get anywhere near Jesus nowadays in the church at large? Just shout it out. Anton LaVey, well, yeah, he's the, uh, the Church of Satan guy, right? Yeah. Marilyn Manson, he has that funny eye. Don't go near Jesus with that funny eye. <laughs> what else? Howard Stern? Huh? We don't want him. <laughs> Somebody this morning shouted out the Yankees, which I, I, thought, was, I thought that was a little off, off base, but I kind of like the Yankees, but... Miss Cleo. <laughs> what about the new atheists? <laughs> There's a lot of books about atheism being written right now. Those secular humanists who think too hard about things. What about the people who go to Starry Nights Cafe on Wednesday nights for the holistic night, where astrology is just the tiny little tip of the iceberg? what you could hear, um, what we would just, you know, pejoratively call New Agers. And what if God actually spoke to those scary New Age people through their evil New Age religion? That would be precisely what happened to the wise men. <laughs> How about the gay community? Don't come near our baby Jesus. What about the worst criminal you could think of? The kind of criminal who might have to register if he moved into your town. How would we feel about somebody like that coming into this place? The church at large has some of these issues, right? We don't have any of those issues here at Artisan, though, right? We like everybody. Except people over 30. <laughs> yeah, whoa, wait. <laughs> I, got, I got a couple things thrown at me this morning when I said that too. What about people who watch their DVDs full screen? We don't want... No. Oh, yuck. Stay away. <laughs> Burn them. What about people whose default browser is Internet Explorer? On Windows. (laughs) How about Linux users? (laughs) Oh, hey, no. We have some over 30 Linux users in the second row here. (laughs) We're going to come after me after this sermon today. So we can can be all proud of ourselves for our our wonderful open-mindedness when it comes to all sorts of things. But we have our own hang-ups here. And some of them are actually way stupider than the ones that, that we might criticize the church at large for having. So with that idea ringing in your ears a little bit, 
I want to make two appeals tonight before I finish. The first appeal is I'd like to make an appeal to the people in the room who identify themselves as Christians, which is a lot of you. Glad you're here. I'm going to make my appeal to you based on Scripture because I know that you like that. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah chapter 60, which is another of the passages from the lectionary. And could I make a little sort of footnote here in the sermon? Put a pin in that. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Um, I, I had a, a couple of different people this past week emailed me saying, I'm going to use uversion.com um, and read through the Bible in one year. Would you join my Bible reading social network uh, and read through the Bible in one year with me? And I, I politely declined um, because for me, reading that much Scripture every single day to get through the entire Bible in one year, does, it, it, I just, I, my, my brain cannot handle that kind of bandwidth. My spiritual state is apparently not sharp enough to take all that in at once. Um, and I would much rather, and I, I'm certainly no all-star at this either, but I would much rather take it a little bit easier and really dig into the passage of Scripture that I do read. Uh, and one way that you can do that... Now, if you want to read through the Bible in one year, more power to you. That is a healthy thing to do. I would never discourage you from that. But if you want to try something a little bit more bite-sized, um, you might consider using the, the lectionary, which, as we've said before in a couple different settings, is just uh, a series of Scripture readings that are, you, that are assigned to every week. And it, it flows and ebbs with the, uh, the church year, the calendar... And every three years, you basically get through most of the Bible. And so we, are not use, we don't use lectionary texts all the time at Artisan, but we do it a, you know, a good bit of the time. And if you are doing uh, your kind of spiritual reading on your own using the lectionary, you'll be like that much more prepared for the sermon when you get here on Sunday if, if we're using the lectionary. And even if we're not, it's a great way to, to kind of have a structure for your Bible reading. Okay, so... Back to the top of the page. Um, Isaiah 60. This is another passage from the lectionary readings assigned to Epiphany. Verses 1 through 5. <clears throat> the Lord says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light. Now, whenever you hear them use the word nations, they're talking about those other nations. It's them, not us. Okay. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. So a question for you, you Christians in the room. Is that true about your heart? Does your heart thrill and rejoice at the idea that God might be doing something that brings your sons from far away? 
that God might be doing a work in the world that draws people to his son who you might not have approved had you been asked? Does that thrill your heart? Does it make you rejoice? To think that all those people that we mentioned a couple minutes ago might be called to Christ. And might be called in a way that's entirely radical. Sort of radical like throwing a star up in the sky for a pagan astrologer to see and follow to find Jesus. Are you okay with that? If you struggle with that a little bit, and I think in our most honest moments, all of us do, at least a little bit, struggle with that. I want to remind you one more time of how the church handled this Jew-Gentile divide that emerged fairly quickly after the ministry of Jesus ended on earth. You may remember that the earliest Christians were almost all Jews, and yet Gentiles began to start, they started to be converted as well. You have a couple different stories in the book of Acts where Gentiles want to become Christians. And the church was faced with this question. How much do we need to make these Gentiles become good Jews before we will baptize them as Christians? And there was much debate and discussion about this. In Acts 15, you can read about the Jerusalem Council where everybody came together and shared their ideas and shared their experiences about what God appeared to be doing among a people group that they wouldn't have suggested God do anything among. And the conclusion of that council was when James, who was the head of the church in Jerusalem, said this, Acts fifteen nineteen. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. Another translation that you might have read says, we should not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. We should not give them a hard time. Now, it doesn't end right there. He, you, you, you scripture-savvy people know. Whoa, 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 whoa. He said that they have to abstain from fornication and idols and blood and strangulation and stuff like that. Okay, yes. There were a few, a very few conditions. Remember, he, he, Mosaic law is 613 laws. So this four, or three or four or five that James says, okay, we're going to keep these for our Gentile converts. But everything else, circumcision, don't bother, guys. And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> Excessive dietary restrictions. Eat your lobsters. And there was much rejoicing. So if you are a Christian and you are kind of a little uncomfortable with the idea that, might, that God might be calling uh, Marilyn Manson and the gay community and the New Agers and the Yankees <laughs> to himself, just remember Acts fifteen nineteen. We should not make it difficult for those who are turning to God. We should not trouble them. 
So my second appeal is to you in the room who are unbelievers, who are not Christians. No scripture for you. I'm going to instead quote some highbrow English poetry for you because I know that's the kind of thing you're into. Uh, This is um, a poem called The Journey of the Magi, and it's by T.S. Eliot, tremendous English poet. And I'm going to read just a few portions of it. Uh, But this poem, um, we think, was one that he wrote uh, before his acceptance into the Church of England. He had been an agnostic and had converted to Christianity. And this poem is sort of an allegory of his conversion process, using the story of the Magi as kind of a, um, a motif. Starts out, A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for the journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. You unbelievers in the room, I'm thrilled that you feel comfortable to be in this place and to just kind of be in this place and to explore and to hear and experiment with, with participation and see what it might feel like and seem like to be a Christian. But I know that there are voices singing in your ears saying, this is all folly. You are going to visit a baby because you saw a star. You're traveling through the dead of night in the cold, sharp air. What are you doing? So let me ask you, unbelievers in the room, whose voice is it singing in your ear, saying, this is all folly? Is it your parents? You know, um, I love this story that Jason tells sometimes. Um, he was not raised in a religious home, a Christian home, um, and, and, and he converted to Christianity and actually went on to college um, and changed his major from a really lucrative uh, nerdy science thing to a not-so-lucrative um, religious ministry thing. <laughs> and what his dad's response to that was, and I, I quote, Jesus Christ, does that boy know what he's doing? <laughs> and uh, Jason always says, I like to imagine Jesus saying, But man, guys, the voice of our fathers never stops ringing in our ears. And it's not just about matters of faith, but let's stick to that for the minute, saying, this is folly. What is your problem? Grow up. Maybe it's a a husband or a wife whose voice is singing in your ears, or a, a college roommate Maybe you have a favorite professor who is a brilliant secularist and you want to impress him or her in any way you can. And I had some professors in college. I went to a Christian college, so mine were not secularists. Um, If they were, they were doing a good job faking it. Uh, But I had professors whom I wanted to impress any way that I could. Maybe you have a a professor or a, a mentor whose voice is singing in your ears, this is all folly. What are you doing? What are you throwing away? Let me read you 
the closing lines of this T.S. Eliot poem, poem, The Journey of the Magi. The narrator looks back on this event and says, Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. You know, it's interesting. No matter whose voice is singing in your ear saying, this is all folly. And, you you know, let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes it's our own voice that we're hearing. The truth is that once you encounter Jesus in a real way, which many of you have in this place, despite your best intentions, once you've encountered him, you really can't go back to that old kingdom with the alien people clutching their gods. You just know, even though you don't want to think, that what you've seen and heard and experienced is true and real. And it doesn't want to let go of you. And you should be glad of another death. And if that's the way you're feeling, good. Because that's exactly what's required of you. The death of your old self But the good news, literally good news is, as Jesus said on that rooftop, that there is a second birth as well, a birth from above and new life. But once you get to a certain point with Jesus, there's there's no going back, even though you want to. Trust me, I've kind of wanted to at times. Would you fire that uh, worship meditation up on the screen again? This is from Gregory the Great, and he's, he's sort of um, alluding to the story of the Magi. Remember that they were warned in a dream not to go back the way, not to go back to Herod, not to go back. They, they, left, they went back to their country by another road, he said. You don't want to go back down that road. It leads to death. Gregory the Great says that's true for all of us. Having come to know Jesus... We are forbidden to return by the way we came. So things have changed for some of you unbelievers in the room, having been in this place long enough and and experiencing what it's like to worship Jesus and know him. So tell those voices singing in your ear, to shut up, even if it's your own. And as we close our time in the Word, what I would like to do is invite all of you to participate in the Lord's Supper. Because that is the place and that is the way that the two groups of people I made appeals to can eat together in unity. 
You know, we talk very often at Artisan about how the communion table is um, something that we do as an act of remembrance. We talk a lot about how it's food for our souls. That's the John Wesley phrase that I like to use sometimes. And those things are true. But I've been really struck lately how the communion table is also an act of unity. Not just the unity of the people in the room that has the bread and wine in it, but unity with Christians all around the globe who celebrate this Jesus meal together whenever they come together. And when we take the bread and the wine, as his apostles did on that night he was betrayed by one of them, we are participating in an act that unites us with all Christians around the world. And in addition to that kind of unity, it provides and affords a different kind of unity, that unity between the people that are already Christians and those whom God has just called, even when those second people are the ones the first people aren't necessarily always comfortable with. And the reverse is true, too. Some new Christians and and almost Christians, uh, the only thing that's holding them back is the people who've been Christians their whole life because they're idiots sometimes. But God's grace covers not only sin, um, but to a certain extent, (laughs) being an idiot as well. Um, Thanks be to God in my case. So for the rest of our time together, this table will be open, and and, uh, if you are a follower of him, a follower of the way, uh, whether it's your first time or thousandth time, you can come to this table, tear off a piece of that bread, dip it in one of the cups. We have both wine and a non-alcoholic juice. Use whatever would be appropriate for you and your family. And what I'd like you to meditate on as you take communion tonight is unity. Unity with the believers all around the world. Even those believers who might not look and act the way we want them to. Even the ones that we wouldn't have scripted any kind of conversion experience for. Let's pray. God, our Father, we give you great thanks for the mighty sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, and for the really incredible, like literally unbelievable ways you call all people to him. Whether it's a star in the east for some pagan astrologer priests or a simple sermon preached here tonight that you speak to us all and have grace to cover us all. And as we participate in this, your son's supper, we ask that your spirit would dwell in us, that we would be conscious of the unity we share through Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. The table is open. Come when you will.